Well, let me add my welcome to all those joining us online as well as everyone in the house today. Great to see all of you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Amen. Especially our guest today with Parent Dedication. So good to be with you. Welcome to Christ's Journey. We're so glad you're here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. I'm clinging on to that today. And I'm praying that for every single one of you. Within earshot of this message. For as we seek the Lord's wisdom and leadership in this message today. In step three of our series. I'm, I'm trusting for the promise of that verse to come true. Not only in my life but for all of our lives. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, who comes alive in us. You know, I first saw that verse on Evander Holyfield's boxing shorts. Maybe you did too. I don't know if you know this or not, but when he, when he boxed, every one of his shorts said Philippians 4.13. And I remember seeing that as a middle schooler and thinking, oh, wow, look at this. The real deal Holyfield's got a, got a verse on his shorts. So I looked it up and thought, oh, man, I'm making that my verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I'm praying that for every single one of us today. Every single one of us. Remember this verse as we dig into this message today. Recently I heard a friend of mine talk about trapping monkeys in the jungle. <laughs> you know, if you're ever at a dinner party and someone says, hey, let me tell you a story about trapping monkeys in the jungle. You know that whatever follows that line is going to be really, really good. And so my friend of, a friend of mine tells me about trapping monkeys in the jungle. He wasn't the one who did it, but he recently heard about this ancient way of trapping monkeys that he, that he thought was really peculiar. So he told some of us at, at a lunch one day, and I looked up the YouTube video that he referred to from 1912, and I found it. And I want to show it to you because it demonstrates so well what's happening here. So back in the day, these ancient tribes would would cut little holes in a gourd, tie it to a tree, and, and put a little bit of bait inside, inside that gourd. And then a monkey would slip his hand into it, grab onto the bait inside the gourd, and then get trapped inside the gourd. I know, it's, it's kind of, for animal lovers, it's kind of, oh, you know, there's a sweet little monkey that's grabbing. But this monkey would get trapped inside the gourd for one reason and one reason only. Because he wouldn't let go of the bait. And when I heard my friend tell this story and I saw him show this video, I thought, wow, that's so peculiar that this, that this creature who's so smart wouldn't think to let go of the bait to find freedom. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, oh my, that's me. That's you. That's all of us. We reach for the bait and we don't let go and then we get trapped in whatever it is that we reached for. The bait of luxury, the bait of pleasure, the bait of glory, the bait of insert your favorite bait here, whatever it might be. Each appear on the surface so accessible and so within the reach of our grasp. That is until we latch on to it and get stuck in the gourd. Sometimes we feel the entrapment right away. 
like, oh man, I just did it again. Oh wow, I'm in a world of hurt now. <laughs> Been there, done that. Other times it might take years until we realize that we're stuck in this court. Every situation is different. Every person is different. Oftentimes, even our motivation for why we even reached out for this bait to begin with can be complicated and confusing and hard to understand. But what is true is that at some point in our lives, all of us will grab onto the bait and refuse to let go. And once this becomes apparent in our lives, the question then becomes this. Who's holding on to who? Am I holding on to the bait or is the bait holding on to me? And depending on how you answer that question, who's holding on to who, really determines whether or not you live with freedom in this life or become tethered to a gourd, flailing around like we just saw in the image of that monkey. But here's the good news. You get to decide. You get to decide. You get to decide. The power to choose whether you live in freedom, the kind of freedom for which all of our hearts long, or stay stuck in a gourd, it all depends on you. You get to decide. In our current series, He Gets Us, we're exploring the biblical basis for the 12 steps and inviting Jesus to meet us in these steps as a healer and coach in whatever part of our lives that need wholeness and forever freedom. Navigating these 12 steps is tough. And those of you who have actually navigated these 12 steps, maybe in an AA program, maybe in another type of program, you know very well how tough these 12 steps are. In fact, navigating our, our lives out of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups can be one of the most difficult tasks and journeys that any of us ever take in this life. But what a mighty God we serve. Amen? What, what a mighty God we serve who gave us Philippians 4.13 as a promise to us that we could do all things through Christ who strengthens us, including the strength to let go. The strength to let go. Nothing is too hard for God. We say that all the time in Christ's journey. And our senior pastor leads us through that all the time. Nothing is too hard for God. That's the truth that we declare. Ah, oh, sovereign Lord. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 32, verse 17. His power and outstretched arm is mighty to save and able to restore through his merciful touch. Jesus helps us face things that aren't easy to face in this life. That's the good news of Jesus. His good news helps us navigate these trials and these journeys. Jesus said it himself that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. It's a truth we can hold on to today. In the first step of this series and of many of those 12-step programs, we admitted that we were powerless over some part of our lives, that our lives have become unmanageable, flailing, stuck to the gourd. We said, Jesus understands that I'm not okay, so I admit that I need help. In the second step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. We said, Jesus believes that I matter, no matter what, so I believe God can help. Today we turn our attention to the third step, 
and the third message in this series, which declares we are making a decision. We are making a decision to turn our wills and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Today we are saying, Jesus treats me like a healer and coach. So I decide for God. I decide for God. The freedom to choose rests in your hands. In your hands. You get to decide either to invite Jesus into your life, into your hurts, habits, and hang-ups as healer and coach, or to remain trapped in sin. But you get to decide. God has graciously given you the power of free will, of freedom, to make these decisions for yourself. You get to decide. In Luke chapter 15, toward the end of Jesus' life, the teachers of the law complained, that people of questionable reputations followed Jesus and listened intently to him. They complained about this. The teachers apparently had grabbed on to the sin bait of self-righteousness and pride like many of us often do. Oh, man. When we read through the Gospels, the Pharisees quickly become these enemies, these people who stand on the other side of us. But, man, when you really read it with an open heart and a willing heart to understand, oh, my, I find myself on that side so often. The side of self-righteousness, of pride. And once again, in this situation, in accusing Jesus of spending time with these people of, of ill repute, they refused to let go of the bait. And not only that, they felt justified in their accusations and alienation against others because they actually believed that God condoned that. And so here they are, standing in front of the Son of God himself, making these accusations, completely blind to see just how blind they really were. But their complaints didn't stop Jesus, <laughs> thank God, from teaching those who recognized and admitted their need. Luke even tells us that Jesus ate with these people. That is, as these individuals, these individuals of ill repute, as Luke tells us, as they grew close to Jesus, Jesus grew closer to them. And invited, and invited himself in a lot of times to eat with them, invited them to grow close together. Because Jesus loves to dignify those who others tossed aside. He, he did that then in the Gospels, and he still does that now in our hearts and our lives as he restores us back to sanity, back to health, back to life with the Father. And this deeply troubled the ones who tossed those individuals aside. And so when the religious leaders once more made trouble for Jesus and showed themselves ignorant to Jesus' true purpose and identity as servant king and Messiah, Jesus told them three stories to try to help open their eyes to see life as Jesus desires to give it, not as the way that the Pharisees taught it. And he told these three stories. He told a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. At the end of the stories about the lost sheep and the lost coin, Jesus concludes those stories by saying essentially that heaven rejoices over the one sinner who repents, which would have lit up those teachers <laughs> in all of the wrong ways. They would have felt so offended to hear Jesus say that. And even more scandalous was what Jesus said next in the third story about a lost son. One day, Jesus says, this lost son approached his father 
and said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Which in modern day language essentially translates to, hey, uh, father, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me what's mine. At some point in this young man's life, he reached for the bait of greed, for the bait of self-righteousness, for the bait of pleasure, for the bait of pride. I doubt, who knows what? Who knows what this man reached out to? But in saying those words to his father, he essentially said, I don't need you. I don't want you. Get out of my life. And anytime we reach for the bait, we say the same thing to our Heavenly Father. We say the same thing. I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing. Stay away. You know, Jesus doesn't specify what led up to this moment, what circumstances transpired, what situations occurred between the Father and the Son, because really, quite frankly, Jesus didn't need to. What Jesus did, the brilliance in how Jesus told this parable in particular, this third story of the lost son, was that he invites everybody to find their place in this story and to see themselves as the lost younger son. That's the genius of this parable. Because at some point in our lives, like the younger son, we have placed our trust in the bait of the far country to fulfill us rather than in the promises of our father and so jesus creates space in this parable he created the space then for the pharisees but now he creates this space for all of us to continually come back to this story and say where am i in this message where am i in the story am i am i the younger son in this story how am i living my life right now that resembles this younger son. Because whatever that young man grabbed onto, whatever he reached for in that gourd, at the same time that he reached for it, he was letting go of something else. And that was the relationship that he shared with his father. He set off for a place that wasn't his home, in some distant land. And there, Jesus says, he lost everything in wild living. It got so bad for this young man that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything, Jesus says in Luke 15, 16. He was on his own. No one cared about him. No one showed any grace to him. No one showed him mercy. No one cared for him. No one loved him. He was lower than the pigs and longed for their slop to fill his hunger. In that moment, in that moment, at the lowest of the low and the most shame that anyone in that particular day and age could experience. living in, I mean, even today, I mean, you find yourself living with the pigs. I mean, how much lower could that be? In that moment, Jesus says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the younger man got up and went to his father. In the Greek text here, the most literal translation of to his senses is the reflexive pronoun to himself. Which doesn't change the meaning of the parable, but it adds a different layer to it that I think brings all of us into this story. Because I don't know about you, but... But in those lowest, most shameful moments, that's truly when I come to the end of myself and then see myself for who I really am. That's exactly what happened to this young man. 
sitting there in the pig pen, he came to the end of himself, the end of his pride, the end of his self-righteousness, the end of his own ego, and saw himself for who he truly was, a man in need of salvation. His own emotional health dropped so low that he suffered the most shameful disregard. He went from the palace to the pig pen and came to an understanding of himself only by coming to the end of himself. In the pig pen, man, I mean, I get chills thinking about this in my life. In the pig pen, nothing is hidden. He was found out and realized who he truly was, which led him to the recognition of his true identity as one made in the image of his father, as his father's son. When he came to himself, he discovered that he wasn't his own. He couldn't live life by himself. However, he wanted without consequence to himself and others. He belonged to his creator. That's the realization that all of us come to when we, when we see ourselves and find ourselves in this pig pen, completely disconnected, divided, disassociated. We realize, wait a minute. I'm not my own. I, I'm in need. I'm in need of others. I'm in need of I'm in need of help. I'm in need of, of investing into other people so that they might invest into me. I mean, he belonged to his creator, his father, who made him in his own image and calls him good and calls him his son. You've been made in God's image too. Did you know that? Did you know that you share his likeness? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the author wrote this. So God created Mankind, humankind, humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In God's likeness, God created male and female with his image residing in every single individual. Which means every human being in this world shares his likeness. And only coming to the end of ourselves, sometimes that's when we realize this and realize our own need to connect to the one who created us in his likeness. His essence is in you. You aren't simply the sum of dirt and dust rolled up together in the space-time continuum. Man, you are intentional. You have a purpose. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by the maker of heaven and earth. And then last, in his darkest, most shameful moment, the young man came to himself through the remembrance of the most important relationship in his life, the relationship that he shared with his father. The son remembered how his father fairly provided for his workers and thought perhaps maybe that same fairness might extend to him in just mercy. So Jesus says the young man got up and went to his father. And you can imagine what that journey home must have felt like for that young man. <laughs> Some of you have made that same journey yourself, rehearsing what words you might say to your mother, your father, your friends, your loved ones that you heard by going to the far country and clinging on to that bait. Oh, my, you can imagine what that younger son must have been thinking, must have been feeling to confess that he had grabbed onto something. That had stolen so much from him. 
that had taken away so much joy. We've all been there. I've made that same journey home. I've rehearsed those words. How am I going to say this? How am I going to how am I going to share this? And since Jesus is the one telling this story, then obviously he he gets us. He knows that. Jesus knows that when we come to ourselves in that awful realization that we've been holding on to something that we shouldn't be, he knows that so often the first emotion that we're going to experience when we let go is shame. I think Jesus knows that because of what he tells then in the next part of the story about the Father and what the Father does. Shame leads to all kinds of wrong things. But before the younger son could think or do any of those wrong things and keep piling up those wrongs even after letting go of the bait, Jesus tells us what the father was doing while the son was off in the far country making his way home. Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, he being the younger son, while the younger son was still a long way off, the father saw him. Which means that the father must have been looking for him. Must have been searching for the son. Who knows how long the son was away in the far country? Weeks, months, years maybe? Who knows how long the son was away in the far country? But just imagine the father, after his son left, the next morning said, you know, I'm going to wake up early and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to look down the road. And may, maybe, maybe, he'll, maybe he'll be walking back. Maybe he'll decide to come back home. And when I read this parable, I, I got to admit, I, that's, what I'm, that's what I imagine the father did. That every morning when he got up, every evening before he went to bed, he just would take a glance down the road. Maybe today might be the day. Maybe this moment might be the moment when I see my, my boy coming back to me, coming back home to me. Imagine that. The father's love never wavered through the son's wandering. Never wavered. Our God's love for us never wavers through our wandering. Never wavers. In that culture, for an older man to run was extremely shameful and humiliating. But on that particular day, when after all of those other days, he didn't see his son, but on this particular day, he, he saw the image of his boy coming to him. Man, he hiked up his robe, and he started running for, the, running for his boy. I mean, just imagine that. Filled with compassion and salvation for his son who had returned home. During that time, if a Jewish man went off and squandered his inheritance in a place other than his home village, then he would become subject to a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony, which, which consisted of the villagers meeting this, the individual who wanted to return home, meeting him at the edge of the village, breaking a pot at his feet to symbolize the broken relationship between the man and the village. They would yell at him. They would, they would ridicule him. They would shame him for going off and squandering his wealth, with, which was intended to serve the village. And then they would outcast him forever, never allowing him back into the village. The Pharisees who heard Jesus' story would have known that would have known that ceremony. They probably maybe even practiced it with other people who actually did this. And so in the way that Jesus told this parable, 
he not only shows an image of a father filled with compassion for his son, hiking up his robe, going after him on the road, on the road to throw his arms around him and kiss him, but he's also speaking to the underlying cultural narratives that say, the village has no condemnation over my son. My son is welcome here. My son is welcome home. And I'm showing the forgiveness that I am giving to my son by throwing my arms around him and kissing him. I mean, the story behind the story of what Jesus is telling to these self-righteous individuals clinging on to the bait is a story of a father, our heavenly father, who loves you so much that not only is he filled compassion for you, but he's holding off the rest of the world from condemning you, from wanting to shame you, from wanting to take away your identity as one made in his image, but instead say, no, this is my son, this is my daughter, he belongs to me, and I'm showing him all the love and grace and forgiveness in the world because he's my boy and he's returning home. Amen? That's the, that's the thrust of this parable. And this, in this parable is an illustration of our good, good Heavenly Father who entered into our world through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, his blood, shed on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, which covers us like a father's embrace and restores us safe at home with him. You know, Jesus closes this story with the father declaring to all of those within the sound of his voice, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And is found. For those of you who might be in the far country today, in whatever form that might be. Maybe alcohol, maybe drug abuse, maybe pornography abuse, maybe greed, and maybe for all of us, just like the pride of life that just lures all of us. Whatever it might be for you today. I would want you to leave here with nothing else other than when the moment comes for you, when holding on to the bait is taking everything from you, is stealing everything from you, when you let go of it, there's a father waiting to receive you. Waiting to receive you. In that far country, you also know, like I do, that there's an enemy seeking and working hard to steal, kill, and destroy from you. In fact, the Apostle Peter describes it like this in his first letter to the church. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There's a father, however, who made each one of us in his own image and covers us by the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Man, I've been in the far country, and I have felt like I was being devoured. But then letting go and letting God allow the covering of Christ's sacrifice to secure me from the lion that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. We are no longer slaves to sin, Paul tells us. The bait's not holding on to us. We're holding on to it. And in some ways, that's really good news. That's really good news because at the moment when you decide to let go of it, and realize that when Christ died for us, we were set free from the power of sin. Then we received the grace upon grace and the freedom and joy for which all of our hearts long. The phrase that Paul uses when we died 
with Christ refers to the image of baptism. In baptism, our lives descend into the watery grave and then symbolically rise out of the water in new life with Jesus. Baptism symbolizes that transformation of our lives from death to life and declares that sin has no hold on our lives. Yesterday at Beach Baptism, we baptized 23 individuals who declared that in their lives. Amen. Who said no more. I got a chance to talk with a couple of those individuals before we went into the water, just for a minute. And all of them had this story. I was clinging on to something. I invited Jesus into my life. I let go. And then I felt the freedom that I've always wanted. I received the joy that I'd always been looking for. A couple of weeks ago, we heard the story of Eddie, who said, if I had known that I could experience that joy, I would have followed Jesus when I was two. Because that's, because it, that's the irony, is that we're clinging on to it, seeking fulfillment, when in reality, as soon as we cling on to that bait, it starts stealing from us from that moment. It starts stealing from us. And stealing from That's the lie that we, that we, that masks our eyes when we hold on to that bait. When you think about repentance, which, what image comes to mind for you? Is it punishment? Is it fear? Is it regret? What did Jesus say after the, two, after the first two stories that he shared? He said that heaven rejoices over the one sinner who repents. What do each one of these three parables have in common? They each tell of finding what was lost. Finding what was lost. According to the heart of the Father, as we see in the life of Jesus, repentance doesn't mean shame. It doesn't mean what this world makes it out to mean. We don't see a God ready to smack you down for coming back to him. Rather, we find a Heavenly Father ready to receive us. Repentance means being found. In the Greek, repentance literally means to turn. When you turn from your way to Jesus' way, as soon as you make that turn, you, boom, it's embrace, it's kiss, it's restoration back into the home. All done by the forgiveness of sin through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So today, if you find yourself holding on to a sin bait that's been stealing from your soul, but you fear letting go of it because of what might happen to you, then friend, brother, sister, repent and be found today. Repent and be found. Turn and let go. And be found. Repentance is life. It's not shame. It's life. It's life. It's life. Some of you might need to just tell yourself that over and over and over again today. Repentance means being found. Repentance is life. Repentance means being found. And your heavenly father is right there waiting for you. And the love of all of it is that you get to decide. You get to decide the power is in your hands. No one else can decide for you, not even God. Your parents, your spouse, your friends, your children, no one else can decide this for you. Only you. You get to decide. God has given you the freedom to decide because true love doesn't force. True love waits and true love risks. And for your Heavenly Father, you are worth the rate. You are worth the risk. Every single time. So today, who's holding on to who? Who's holding on to who today? Are you holding on to the sin bait of death? Or are you being held in the nail-scarred hands of the one who gave his own life for you? Who gives you joy and freedom and who desires to find you? In the AA Manual of Recovery, better known as the Big Book, 
The opening paragraph of step three says this, and it's brilliant. It says, practicing step three is like the opening of a door, which to all appearances is still closed and locked. All we need is a key and the decision to swing the door open. There is only one key, and it is called willingness. Once unlocked by willingness, the door almost opens of itself. And looking through it, we shall see a pathway beside which is an inscription that reads, this is the way to a faith that works. We call a faith that works one that trusts in Jesus. And the willingness to open the door is the step of repentance. The first two steps are admittance and belief. But this step is a step of action. It's a step of decision. Jesus said to John in the Revelation, we just went through this a few weeks ago. Jesus says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Not shame, not guilt. But the image that Jesus chooses to use is a, is a friendship meal. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and, and sat with my father on his throne. Jesus is the one and sole victor in this life, but he invites you to share in the victory with him. Upon repentance of letting go, of turning from our way to his way and receiving his warm embrace, Jesus welcomes us to the, to the throne. <laughs> I mean, what grace, what mercy. The Pharisees wanted to alienate and exclude, and Jesus says, no, I want everyone to share my throne. I created all of you in my image. Come to me and receive life. And be found. And let Jesus into your life as healer and coach. What do you need in a healer? You need someone who can restore you back to health, who understands your body, how your mind, body, soul works together, and can prescribe the good medication that you need. Jesus is like a restoring healer who gets you, who knows you, and can prescribe the right medicine to touch exactly those places in your life that need healing. What do you need in a coach? You need someone who can guide you with wisdom and help you become your best and most complete self. Bearing his image in every aspect of your life. Jesus is like a trustworthy coach who knows you, who knows how to push you, who knows how to grow you and rise you up, which may feel uncomfortable in the moment, but he won't ever break you or lead you astray. Jesus gets you. He knows you. So decide today. Decide to let go. Decide to let go. There might be consequences to, to holding on to whatever you decided to hold on to. And that's okay. We'll deal with that. We'll deal with those consequences. We'll help you. And we as a church have resources to do that. Don't fear whatever that might look like, and let whatever you've been holding on to continue stealing from you, stealing your joy, robbing you of a relationship with your Father. Today, let go. Jesus, we need you. We thank you for taking away the power of sin in our lives and giving us the freedom to let go. Jesus, we need your strength. Maybe what we're holding on to, we 
know it's stealing from us, but maybe we still find satisfaction in it or, or think we're finding satisfaction in it. Lord, help us see your truth. Help us see what's really happening to us. Help us, help us see and understand what life with you would really look like and how that joy would overflow into those around us. Jesus, today we receive your forgiveness and we're taking a step with you. For those of you today who want to take that step to let go, maybe, maybe today, maybe right now, the spirit is working in your life and you are hearing loud and clear, it's time to let go. Then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, for far too long, I've been holding on to this thing and I know that I need to let go. I know that I, my life would be so much richer with you and, and my relationships would be restored and I would have the confident hope of eternity with you. And so today, Jesus, in your power, I'm letting go. I'm turning from my way to your way. I'm receiving the forgiveness of, your, of my sins. I am putting my eyes on you and I'm walking with you, Jesus. Today's the day. Today is my day that I will look back on forever and say, it was hard. It was tough. And the consequences that I needed to face were, were difficult, but you were with me every step of the way and I have felt freedom and joy ever since. Let today be the day. As I make this prayer in the name of Jesus, if you prayed this prayer with me and you want to let go, then with all of our heads still bowed, I want to invite you to put your hand in the air just so that you can declare, I'm doing it. I'm letting go today. Amen. Amen. I'm letting go today. And I'm turning from my way to your way, Jesus. I'm receiving freedom today. And I'm walking a new life with you today. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the hands raised. Thank you for the ways in which your spirit is coming alive today for the first time in people's lives, restoring hope, restoring families, restoring his home with you. And so, Lord, I pray blessing over every person in this experience today, every person receiving this message, Lord, help us take our steps with you. Help us continue turning from our way to your way, letting go, finding freedom, finding joy as we make this prayer. In the name of the one who saves. Amen.